there are power dynamics here within this idea of socialism that seem so likely to corrupt the individual in charge mm -hmm. that it's an untenable idea. I like to use the example of like a, a, the kid game, King of the Hill. Well, imagine you're playing that on a big stack of gravel, okay? That's the market. That's yeah. your market process. Everyone's fighting to get to the top. The moment you get to the top, not only is everyone else trying to knock you down, your footing's unstable too. You can't control a free market because that's by definition, right. it's a free market, right? Government likes control. They like controlling things. So if you like controlling things, what is the best form of economic theory that you would want to have? It'd be socialism. Everyone, thank you so much for coming back to the show. I'm excited for this podcast for a couple of reasons. Number one, it is the first time in our brand new studio, which I know I've talked to you guys that it's coming soon, but we finally did it. So that's exciting. Thank you all for the support over the year. I have my buddy Wes here. Wes, our relationship's fun. We were just talking about it off camera. We met on Twitter because we were both diehard Pistons fans. Wes happens to be a producer of a very successful blog, excuse me, podcast called the pistons pulse yeah, the blog's not there <laughs> blog's yet, not where you want to go yeah <laughs> but very successful from uh, from a sports podcast perspective and he produces that he also has his own podcast called the pin down that he runs with blake silverman and so he's done a lot of content creation but his real passion is economics he has his master's degree from george mason correct, correct me if i gave this wrong and uh we met on Kill twitter it. because of the pistons and then over time we created a really good you know relationship and the way we actually started talking was because I tweeted out something that didn't make sense to me. And then he messaged me on Twitter being like, I might actually have an economic answer for you. And then now you know you're on the show. So welcome, man. Yeah, thank Appreciate you. you. Thanks for having here. me. So for everyone listening, we have not done anything like this before. This is a new kind of mode for us to go to. In the past, it's been all business. But I'd love today to kind of talk about economics of kind of like a bunch of questions I have. I think economics could be scary for a lot of people, I think, or they just don't care or they don't know how it works. And economics is very important because it kind of runs the country in a way, like at least yeah. the theories behind it. And so uh, we're going to talk about a lot of fun things today, a lot of potential controversial things today. And controversial, not because we're trying to be, just because when it comes to these belief structures, there are people that will die on both hills and so I wanted to talk to someone that has a lot more knowledge than I do about these issues. And that happened to be Wes. And Wes drove three hours, two hours and 55, 45. I mean, we could round that up. <laughs> to be here. And we're glad you're here, man. So I guess the first thing that brought us together was this question. We can just kind of dive in here. So Absolutely. If anyone follows my Twitter, I wouldn't recommend it unless you want to get a lot of political. <laughs> Pistons and politics are like the two things I tweet. The two Ps. So I was looking at the homelessness of California, okay? And I was just saying, why do people in California vote for Gavin Newsom? Because to me, from an outside looking in, I'm like, I wouldn't want to live there right now. Things are crazy expensive. The homelessness is out of control. <clears throat> and so I just put out the twist. I just put out the question. Why do people vote for Gavin Newsom? And then you responded and you were just like, I have an answer. So talk to me about voter economics. Like what's, why do people vote the way they vote? And then what's the, yeah, like what, like you have a theory on this. So, so talk well, to me about this. Well, it's not, it's not my theory. So I want to make sure that that one's clear. This is, this is all coming from what's known as the public choice school of economics. Mm -hmm. So that is 
more of the political bent. A lot of economics will get into like institutional type analysis. Public choice is very much why do voters and why do political systems output the things that mm. they do? So in this specific instance, the the first thing that you got to be aware of when you're analyzing it is to ask the question, does that one vote really matter? Mm. Statistically, it, it doesn't, right? So in order for a vote to matter, you'd need an election so close that it's going to come down to one vote. And not only that, you'd need that one vote to be your vote, mm. Right. So the odds of that ever happening, even at a really small local election, mm -hmm. incredibly small, incredibly low odds. So practically, you should vote. I'm not telling you not to vote. I think voting is a civic duty and it's a good thing for a lot of people to do. But practically, your vote is not going to be the deciding one. So if you're not voting because you think your vote is going to decide the election, which is the assumption we're going to make here, then why would you vote? There are high costs. It takes a lot of time to get to the polls. It takes mm. a lot of time to research all of these candidates, to have an understanding of where everyone's policy position is, your opinions mm. on it. Even just watching the news, that's part of the voting process for actual individual voters. That takes time too. So there is a fairly high cost. You need something valuable enough for most people to you know exceed that cost. So that's the calculation you're yeah. trying to make. Uh, in this case, most, I would expect most public choice theorists would, would lean to saying that there's a social desirability bias. People want to be well-liked amongst their friends. So if you can be voting Democrat in California, where likely most of your friends are Democrats and are very happy with these positions, whether you hold them or not, mm -hmm. if you say, hey, I just voted for Gavin Newsom and you get a pat on the back, well, that can make it all worth it. You know, it in in reality, you're just trying to be a little bit closer to the people you care about. Mm. And and that's a pretty rational thing to do. Yeah. You know, it, I wouldn't say that it's it's the wrong approach, but in, in terms of why people might vote against, quote unquote, their self-interest, whatever someone might identify that as, mm. there there is a lot of social capital that you can gain. So what would it take then for somebody to say, I know all of my friends... Like at what point is the breaking point? Because I feel like at some level, if I'm living in California and I can't safely walk from point A to point B, I'm going to say, you know, I'm not voting with my family. But that is what the theory, the theory is people, yeah. people will, to their potential own harm and detriment, do what's popular. Is that, is that? Sort of. So what I would say is that the weight the push and pull of this mm -hmm. is between your vote mattering to change that outcome versus the potential feedback you could get mm -hmm. from friends, family, coworkers, right? Yeah. So again, if we go all the way, you know, we go back to saying statistically my vote's not going to change the outcome. If I accept this, then you're really only doing yourself harm. If you think about yeah. it, by voting for what you truly want in in the end, if you disagree with you know, Gavin Newsom in yeah. this case, right? right? You're doing yourself more harm because your circle will likely find out that, hey, you know, I voted against this. They'll be mm -hmm. upset with you mm -hmm. and you lose some of that social capital. Mm -hmm. Whereas you flip it you say, okay, well, you know, it's not likely that I'm going to change this myself by casting my one vote against Gavin Newsom, mm -hmm. again in this case, right? Why would I? Why does mm. it matter? You know, I stand more to lose personally than mm. the state stands to lose 
in, in that general election. Yeah, because we were talking about it at lunch and you kind of mentioned it here. It's where it's like each person's vote actually statistically doesn't matter. Like right. when, the way you phrased it was if that your vote is going to be the deciding vote yes. is going to be the probability of zero pretty much like the, the the percentage is not in your favor that your vote well under one yeah. it's not of course to be clear it's not zero, zero yeah but it's well under one percent chance yeah. and, and well so under, in yeah. theory someone's like well my vote doesn't matter anyway so if if that's what people believe that their vote doesn't matter then they're going to do mm-hmm. with socially whatever makes the most sense effectively right you're you're venturing into this now space of, of something called rational irrationality, right? Mm-hmm. So th- there's another aspect of this to, you know, why are so many people uninformed voters? Well, because of all of the cost associated with going to actually to the polls to cast your vote, to stay informed, and again, the low probability that you yourself will impact the outcome, it actually makes a lot of sense not to spend the time to do it. Mm. Right. So, so with all of these, the tension is not between the outcome that you want or don't want versus the, you know, the social power, whatever you Mm. think that you might be able to get out of voting. The tension is between whatever you might be able to get out of voting positively and the odds of not voting in that way Mm. actually impacting the outcome, which again is next to nothing. Mm. So, democracies don't matter. No, oh, don't go that far. <laughs> don't go that far. So it's a hard balance because then if if statistically everyone believes their vote doesn't matter, mm-hmm. then no one would vote. So there is at some point our votes do matter at some level. Yeah. Right? No, well, like my my democracy like childhood is just being crashed in front of my eyes right now. No, like but you you get the tension, right? Because that's the tension if statistically, but it still as a whole matters who places like what vote right because if no one voted then that would be a completely different story right so now we're just going to talk math here for a hot second so hopefully i don't scare anybody away but on concept you individually are a whole lot different than the mass the mass matters yeah if a lot of people vote and a lot of people are going to collectively vote for one specific outcome such that that outcome that's a big deal. That matters quite a bit. Right. You specifically participating in that vote for that outcome won't matter a lot at all. So the, you know, the practical question for people engaging in politics is how do we craft this large coalition so that we can win elections mm. when in the public choice field, you would say you, you probably know that these people at least have some vague awareness that it's not going to matter too much if I specifically vote. So this is why, you know, you will see a lot of like political events, right? They're not just saying, hey, come listen to this guy speak as politician. They're saying, hey, you know, come listen to him speak. Afterwards, you might get a chance to interact. You'll get food. You'll get drinks. Like there are other things that they're selling to get you in the door to try and motivate you into action, right? It's kind of like, you know, in college, go to this event, you'll get free pizza. Right, right. right. It's not like the event that gets you there. fitness on Fridays. Right, yeah, yeah, come work out, get free pizza. Do you remember pizza. when they did that? Yeah. Well, so if if that's if if I'm a politician, then you have two choices because this kind of mm-hmm. makes sense now with what's happening. You either, if there's a cost to vote, time, and there learning, is. right? Then there's one of two ways that you can do. You can either make the cost more worth it by doing events, by making it seem more worth your while, or you can lower the cost. Yes. So right now, 
the left is saying like in-person voting shouldn't have to be a thing. You don't have to bring an ID card. In economic theory, you could argue that what they're trying to do is just lower the cost of voting. Practically, yeah, uh, I would say they are. Okay, that's intriguing. I have my own thoughts on that, but that's not for this podcast. No, so, so that's that's interesting. Now, now to be clear, too, with that specifically, you're not reducing the cost to zero. Yeah. There's still time that you have to take filling out the sheet. There's time I'll that you have to take mailing it. Yeah. And yeah. actually, maybe in some cases, if you don't have a mailbox attached to your apartment or you don't have a post office nearby, mm. it may actually be more difficult for you to vote by mail mm. in terms of this cost of of time. Right, that that you're taking to actually get that vote in, and remember, all of this cost too. This is technically an opportunity cost, mm. right? So it's not the fact that you're spending the time; it's mm. the fact that this time will be spent on one thing or something else that may be more valuable to you. In business, I mean, this is very similar to like a business, which I've never thought of voting this way at all, or like getting votes. If you had a web, if you had a, a website store, right, you would want to make it as easy as possible for people to click. And purchase. You want to take the 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 all of the steps and the questionnaires and all of the junk out. You want it to be like that's why Amazon is the king of the buy now button, right? They already have all your information. They've made it too easy to buy. Like the cost to buy now, as far as like time and the pain of like I don't know if anyone's ever gone to a website where you've just you've gone to where you bought your stuff and then Google didn't save your 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 and you like I don't want to put in my credit card information right now, so you don't do it. Same theory. Right in theory, sure, yeah. Voting, if if they if people could in theory make voting easier, then they in a sense could get more votes. And so, like they're just trying try trying to take down the cost of voting potentially. And, and I would I would add to this that you know practically probably the most consuming aspect of this cost to voting is the the cost of getting your awareness and knowledge mm. of certain issues up. So, you know, we're, we're dealing with a not insignificant, but a smaller portion of what I would define as, as the real cost of voting. The time that you would have to spend during the election cycle to be a truly informed voter, right? And, and make a decision based on all of that information. It's actually quite high. Yeah. It, Which that's it hard really to do. is. Well, that's hard to do anymore either. Like how do you, do. how do you dictate truly, you know, informed when, it's hard to even believe any of the information that you're actually reading. And is it, and that's like, another layer. Yeah. That's another layer of how do you find fair, legit, true facts, mm-hmm. not just facts based off of one party or another. That's, I can't remember. There's a website and I can't remember who promotes it. Oh, Graham Stephan does. I don't know if you know who Graham Stephan is. He's a YouTuber, very successful, but they promote a website where they bring in articles on the left and the right on a topic on the like same both website. Sides, uh... Yeah. Yeah, so you'll search whatever topic you're interested in, immigration, whatever. There'll be articles from Fox and CNN right beside each other. And so you can see like the actual mm-hmm. like headlines and how they differ. Um, like just, cool. is there actually, I, I can't remember what it's called. Maybe I'll put it as a link, but that's that's interesting as far as like I never viewed voting that way. And I think it, it makes sense to some degree why like someone like California, like in, in my mind, I'm like, even if you vote another Democrat, it's not Gavin. Like that's how I think about it. But if A, people don't believe their vote doesn't really matter in this goat scoop thing, which it doesn't right. for math, but also socioeconomically with their friends, I mean, do they believe it enough to lose that connection with? Right. That's, that's really the question, right? Yeah. It's I, like, I are they willing so. to give up 
the socio... Do you want more coffee? Sure. Yeah, thank you. For the very, very low percentage that their that vote actually does accomplish anything. Right. Now, this will probably end up being a theme as we continue talking, but economics as a science, it's a social science, okay? So really, it's a study of human interaction. It's transactions back and forth. So this theory does in large part rest on on the assumption that people are aware that their vote doesn't matter. Mm. You can make an argument both ways on that. I I have no good answer. So that's the right? premise. Uh, the premise of this theory is that people go into the tension, voting. Right, that's the tension. The tension is I know that I can't influence the outcome, so what can I do to, to make still my- go and vote, right? Because there has to be something that's worth it to me to get out and go vote and be informed about it. But in theory, cetera, if everyone did believe that their vote actually mattered, then things might look differently in theory. Right. And you can make an argument you're telling both me ways that, to that. You're telling me that votes don't matter. Votes, definitively, your individual vote doesn't matter. That doesn't help my cause, man. <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't. Whether everybody but, but, but in mass, mass is aware of it, different but, question. But the individual creates the mass, right? Some ways. So then in that theory... It does matter because you are part of the mass, and without sure, if without your actual vote, the mass, the mass doesn't given, exist. Though. The mass is a given. It's, we're gonna get a, it's a little determinist now, yeah. right? You yeah, know, yeah. There, there's some deeper philosophical some, layers some, here, some but semantics a little you know, bit too. By and large, people will vote. Yeah, there will be a lot of them. Yes. So, given that reality, yeah, your vote specifically, and that's where the theory happen. comes from. That makes sense, or at least partially. Hmm. That's in, that's interesting. I. I think that that's a good segue into where I want to go next because the beautiful thing about America as a whole is that it, well, some of us don't believe it exists anymore, but at one point we had a democracy and it was a republic, it was, you know, and people actually could vote and it mattered. I don't know if that's the case anymore, but that's besides the point. But I, I, I grew up being taught that capitalism was good, healthy, while maybe flawed, the best we have. As I've been growing up, we've had a very big push in America for socialism. Bigger worldwide, push. Yeah. And in worldwide, yeah. Very it was it already worldwide at some level, but then it kind of seems like it's gone in other countries now. It's just kind of invading us. I mean, obviously Canada Canada being one and right next to us. And as a kid, I remember being like, Wow, I really hope America is never socialist because from what I was taught, capitalism is best. And so I'm going into this argument obviously with I would like to think as a decent amount of education. <laughs> Because both a college degree and a mm-hmm. you know a high school degree qualifies, you know, so at least I have some level of yeah. education on this, but I, I don't have the actual economics of it because I think a lot of people would be like, well, socialism is bad because of this socioeconomic issue that I'm passionate about, or capitalism does this because you know it's not fair to this certain you know. Whereas if we look at the economics and we look at the math of it, that's what I'm curious about, gotcha. and so one of the reasons of why I wanted you on the show was I wanted to be like, okay, if we just strip the emotion away from this debate, capitalism versus socialism, and we just said, you know what? We're not going to talk about the, the you know, people picking them up at why America is the greatest country in the world and like that, you know, like why yeah. people, we're not going to talk about any of the, like the actual case study, like proof of the good or bad, just the pure economics of why one is better than the other. I'm interested to know your thoughts on capitalism versus socialism. And then is there a better one? Is there is there a third that I don't know that would be better than in your opinion than 
then, and I know I'm asking very loaded questions, <laughs> uh, and you're like, I don't know where to start with all of this. <laughs> but that's my question. So I guess if we want to talk about capitalism, because I think that's the, we are pretty familiar. What is mm -hmm. capitalism? So let's define it for okay. our listeners, just to make sure we're all on the same page. And then maybe talk about pros and cons of capitalism, or okay. do you want to just kind of jump back and forth between both? Like, what do you think would be better? Gosh, you know, I, I was aware of this coming in, but these are two softballs, really. Yeah, fantastic start. Good. I'm glad we, I set it up well. You set it up well. Okay. Let's, we can define capitalism and then we can kind of, I guess, go, go from there. So capitalism as, as a market system is effectively just an unregulated market. Okay. So I, I assume based on how this has started, we'll, we'll probably get into this later on. Would not argue we're living in a purely capitalistic society. I doubt that many economists would. So if you're going to go a, a pure capitalism, firms and consumers, no government in the way, very little, if any, regulation on top of that. It is just a pure interaction in a market setting. Can I ask you a quick question on that? Of course. Have we ever experienced that in America? I cannot, off the top of my head, think of any example of a purely capitalism. Now, I think we can segue this and talking about both a little bit because practically neither's been fully implemented. So I know that there's, you know, sometimes you'll see online the, well, socialism truly hasn't been tried. And it's like, well, you know, I can yeah, also say yeah, capitalism yeah, hasn't truly yeah. been tried. So let's talk about the, the theory of why both would or wouldn't work. So w with economics, you, it is a study of a market, right? I said earlier, it's human interaction. So on on the theory, I do feel pretty well equipped to talk about either. Okay. Yeah. So then capitalism is an unrela uh, unregulated market where Effect. transactions can happen without any type of intervention and allowing human interaction to just happen and the next thing's just kind of whatever happens yep. without, without a third party coming in and setting things. Generally speaking. Okay. Socialism. Let's contrast that. So if that's capitalism, what is socialism? Command and control. So you have a centralized economy. You have a person, could be a few people, doesn't have to be specifically one, but you have basically a central body of control that will be dictating how much of good X goes to firm and consumer YZ, right? And, and so on down. So if you, if you want to think about it in extremely simplified terms, capitalism is extraordinarily decentralized. Socialism is extraordinarily centralized. Okay. And, and so let's just pretend America was the poster child for capitalism. Okay. Who is the poster child that majority, not some like, you know, random country out there somewhere in the world, but like what would be probably the most popular? Soviet Russia. Okay. Would be the most contrast. Yeah. Soviet Russia. There. Okay. So let's talk, let's talk, let's actually talk socialism first. Okay. The people that are pushing for socialism in the United States, what are, what's their, what's their, like, what is their pros? Like why? push it what do they look what what are they telling people that we are going to gain if we become more of a socialist country you know it's there is a little bit of a utopianess that that i would argue comes through now i'm maybe a, a little bit negative uh, on that end of it mm -hmm. but you know basically by controlling all of these mechanisms we'll be able to select better outcomes for everybody in the market. So everybody's going to be better off 
if we're socialist, you know, you don't have to work. You can just do whatever, you know, if you want to do something artsy, you know, you could do this podcast full time. Thing, things like don't that. Don't tell me it, that. I might turn uh, socialist. No, I know. <laughs> but things like that, yeah, those yeah. are generally the, okay. the arguments, at least that I've heard. Historically, you know, it goes a little all over the place. But. Okay. So socialism is one person or one group of people controlling things for the masses. Fair. At some level. Controlling markets. So, markets. so okay. Marx was not an economist. He was a philosopher. Socialism is an economic theory. Right. So while there are quite a bit of aspects that do lean more into sociology, the meat and potatoes of socialism is economics. So he very much crafted a market system that was controlled. It was controlled. Right. So it was a government forward market system mm -hmm. is more or less what, what socialism is, at least economically speaking. So again, you know, Soviets, yeah, that was, that was communism. They implemented some socialism, some not. You know, it wasn't perfect. It was not pure. Marx would not have been happy. Actually, Lenin wouldn't have been happy either with mm. what Stalin did. But in in terms of you know the the tenets of how the system functioned, very similar. Okay, and so then if if and by the way, is is communism and socialism so is is like socialism the economic rules of communism? Not quite. Or are they? Are they they're, they're two different. distinct things? Okay. They're two distinct things. So Marx makes the argument that this is kind of a, a progress. You have capitalism. Capitalism devolves into something you've probably heard of now, late stage capitalism, where he argues that capitalism breeds basically monopolists. Through that, you're going to remove power and you know, freedom from the masses, the, the proletariat. They're going to, the workers are going to rise up take over and institute a socialist system, which is governed by the, the people that were at the bottom, but practically it's just a, a set controlled outcome is the goal, right? Now socialism. Of, of socialism. Now, now you add on, on top of that, communism is more of a political apparatus more so than, than an economic function. So you had like Stalin probably, I guess I don't know for sure, but seemed to believe in socialism. He was part of that movement. Communism was the political style that he set up. Socialism is not political. I hope I'm making sense. Yeah, well, I know I this is kind of bouncing back and forth. So no, you're good. So then if, and this is why we have two hours we can talk about as sure. much as we want. So it's not, we're not in a time crunch. So is it then, in the, so if socialism is an economic th it theory is. of, of it is. utopia. It's a system. It's an institution. Can you then have a political democracy with a socialist economy? Have you heard of democratic socialists? Or I have. Is yeah, there are, there are a lot of people that advocate for that exact thing. I don't necessarily think it's practical. I think there are power dynamics that are probably untenable there that, that would ruin the idea. But yeah. There, there are quite a few people that would advocate for that exact sort of thing, mix of democracy and socialism. And in fact, I was just the other day reading, reading a book written by someone who's a socialist. A friend recommended it to me. So okay. Doing a favor reading it yeah. through, even though I haven't enjoyed it all that much. But this author makes the specific argument that socialism is, in fact, more democratic than capitalism is, even with democracy involved, because socialism on some level, is a product of workers. So it's a little more bottom-up, though it ends in central control. 
that's the argument that he made. Yeah. So yeah, this is my question. The, the thing, the thing that's not clicking with my brain with socialism is the theory is always like the people at the bottom get mm-hmm. control, you know, have control now and, you know, they can, you know, capitalism creates monopolies, right. And socialism can tear them down. And socialism is there to help the, the poor and the, the, the low man and the totem pole. Right. But there's still a group of people laying down the, the rules for it to function, right? Mm-hmm. Practically, yeah. You know what might help? Think of uh, unions. I'm not going to say unions are socialists. They're not. Um, they're just a labor group, right? But but in terms of the type of uh, uh, effect and outcomes that they strive for, so if you look at the auto workers, right? Just recently, Michigan gets rid of right to work. That means now if you're working in, a, in an auto factory, you have to be part of the union. The union has. They have quite a bit of power because of that, both in direct negotiations with firms and when they're with the government. And through that, though the leaders of the UAW are appointed by vote from all of the members, right? They do have complete power over what the, what union, the union does. does right. So, so in a way, it's it's somewhat similar because you you truly just have the workers. The workers have kind of put forth their they're talking head and now this is going to be the individual that makes all the decisions for the group the group still is technically in power it's being operated by this one individual hopefully that makes some sense 100 percent sense so then if if i'm a social so let's say like I'm, i'm like okay this in theory would be amazing for america because capitalism is bad yeah what's the economic reason that it just can't work like like why could if if you're like in theory, socialism would support the lower man, bring people up, allow everyone to have a more equal lifestyle, blah blah blah. Like, why can't that work? So you mentioned earlier that we might get into some math. You were hoping to see the statistics. Yeah, I'm sorry, that's I don't okay. I don't have math for that's you on okay. this one. Th- this is going to be just pure theory. So hopefully, yeah, you know, if I enough. say something, if I say something that's that's too far, go ahead and and, and make me re-explain it. But I want to bring up something. Uh, it was a Period of time in the early 1900s, it was, this was the socialist calculation debate. Not a lot of people know about it, but this was something that purely went on within the field of economics. Sorry, when was this? You just said it, but when? Early 1900s. 1900s, okay. Early 1900s. The socialist debate. or socialism. Calculation debate. Okay. So socialism relies what we call calculation. So there's a central person in control, and from this one spot, they need to be deciding who gets how much of what economy wide everybody is now under the purview of this individual the argument is is there a practical way to make this one person so capable that everybody's better off that we get better outputs than what a market would decide because a market's mm. very scattershot yeah. right it's very trial and error there's a lot of really big successes a lot of really big failures and you practically very, very difficult to predict what an outcome is going to be. Right. So if there is a way to calculate mm-hmm. a better outcome, it would be better. So th- this is kind of the, the crux of the debate. Socialism is pushing centralized calculation and the people that were arguing against it were pushing decentralized, let it happen because we don't know, we can't calculate. The the two kind of big sides of this were Oscar Lange, the had F.A. Hayek and, and Ludwig von Mises. Mises and Hayek were part of the Austrian School of Economics. Okay. Uh, I actually don't know uh, what, what school Lange was, was part of now that I'm thinking about it. But regardless, these are your main characters. 
Okay. So the, the two big critiques that we really need to bring up, the first is Mises. Mises brings up price. Okay. So imagine that you are a central planner. You are in charge of the railroads and you want to lay more track. Okay. All right. So you need iron. You need iron to lay more track. And this is going to be straight out of a textbook. So I hope right. this is, I hope this, this is, is easy this enough is for you. Yeah, okay. I'm following. I have an IQ of 10, so I should. No, be no, no, you're good. Like I said, I just, I, sometimes you get caught up in your own, in your own world, right? I will stop I, I don't you. want to go too far. I will pump far. the brakes if it's bad. Perfect. Okay. So like I said, straight out yeah. of a textbook. So okay. you're calculating, you're the central planner. You need to lay track. You need iron. Unbeknownst to you, there has been a big explosion at an iron mine. Iron is now scarce. Just happened. We don't know why. Iron's scarce. So in a market setting, the price of iron is going to go up because if the because demand, there's the less demand, right? Exactly. Right. Because there's less. And it, it's a little bit of a of a surge price. Okay. Iron is now unexpectedly scarce. Mm-hmm. We will, if we sell iron, we will raise the cost. Not because we want more profit, but because by raising the cost, people buy it less, which means I don't run out of iron to sell. Okay. So, so price of iron's gone up. We're in a market setting. If you work for the train company, you know, okay, iron just went up. I want to lay more track. Is there a potential alternative to iron that I could use? Is there another metal that might work? Is it, this is the only one, you know, this is the one supply, uh, the one material that I need and I have no other options. Well, in that case, you're probably going to pay the price. But what that price going up does is it communicates to every single buyer of iron that iron is scarce. If you can, you should probably use something else. Mm. Okay. All because the price went up. No one knows that there was this big explosion. The price just increased randomly. So if you you know are, are using iron for, I don't know, like like nails yeah. or something. Well, right, you know, right. maybe you'll use zinc for the next couple of months until that price goes back down, right? That's only because of that one bit, that one price increase. There's no other information communicated to every single firm. Iron scarce. Adjust if you can. Now take price away. You're a central planner. You have less iron. How do you know who needs iron the most? All of these firms, right? Remember, when the price goes up, all of these firms, they make an internal calculation. They go, okay, can I substitute it for something else or do I still need to use it? If I still need to use it, that means iron's my only option, right? I need the iron. Other people didn't. Right. Does this still make yeah, sense? Following. Okay, perfect. So if you take that price away, how do you as a planner know who needs it the most? You can't trust them to tell you. Everyone's going to tell you they need the iron. So how do you know? This is Mises' critique. He says price communicates a lot of information in a market setting that remove the price. You don't know how to allocate things. So here's a clarifying thought for people. So then in socialism, the pure form of socialism- There's no price. There's no price. That's, I think, the- Correct. Yes. In a pure form of socialism, the utopian form that is, I think, and I- I can and remember, you know, price is of a market setting, right? So right. if you are against markets, Can't you want to move past it. There's no so bartering, then is it no just transaction. Like bar- bartering, trading? Like how, how do transactions happen in a socialist? They don't. Hmm. So whatever thing. you get mm-hmm. and everyone gets the same. Maybe. It's Depending. supposed to be, the, the phrase is, 
Oh, oh shoot. Something of his need according to what he gets. Okay. Some, some along those lines. Okay. If you need it, you will have it. That okay. is the promise. The, and, and, and assuming you have the person or peoples in power that will make the right decisions for the masses to make sure everyone's taken care of. Yes. And Mises' critique is that without price, you cannot make that. You, you don't know. Uh, understood. And, so, and I want to add on to that this critique was so effective that all of the economists working on the other side of the socialist calculation debate accepted it as true and started to institute prices into their own socialism. theorizing mm. of socialism because there is legitimately no way around this issue. You can't have surveys because you can't trust the people that would send up, you know, send honesty back, mm. right? You, there's no practical way for you to get the information that a price conveys. Mm. And again, this was so effective that it changes the entirety of what economists who were studying socialism started to theorize about. This was the thing. I mean, I'd love to be in that room. Right. Oh, I'd love to be in that room. Like Me too. people on both sides of the aisle, you know, the socialists are like, this is true. This is the only way to move forward. Actually, that's a very good point. You know, now that you brought that up, we might want to go back to the drawing board. I didn't actually mean what I said. You know, like I would love to see their faces when he brought up this point. They were the just, best part is this was a purely... This is why I kind of love this little period so much. This has been a fascination for me uh, during during my my program. But this is purely academic. They weren't talking. These were through papers. You know, the, the people, the economists that were thinking that the yeah. you know socialism was a great idea, that it was possible. They're publishing papers. Mises reads it all. He writes his own report, sends it back out, and they all read it and they go, "Whoo, good point." He, yeah, he's not. <laughs> he's he's not wrong. But then they respond, right? Yeah. And they continue on. Well, if anything, what this shows, and this is just a completely sidebar, the importance of just not living in an echo chamber. Absolutely. Like, Absolutely. I think I think for like what this does, it's funny, I just had breakfast with a guy who politically, socioeconomically, in every way, I think we differ. And I, I don't think there's actually one thing that we would actually agree on. You're talking about our lunch earlier? No, not, that wasn't that bad. <laughs> no, I was kidding. And so, and so, but I remember just being like, bro, like I love these because I don't want to live in an echo chamber because Absolutely. like that's a, I think where you end up believing things are true that actually aren't true in reality, right? So if like someone lives and all of their friends believe in socialism and then they hear this podcast, they might be like, well, he just, Wes actually just made some very good points. And that's the whole point. So I think, Props to those guys for having the humility to read Mises, right, paper and say he has an excellent point. To this day, you will not find you will find economists that think socialism is possible. You will not find a single economist that says you can do it without any sort of price mechanisms. Mm. And so Marx, Karl Marx, was he that at the time? Right, but he was kind of the main driver of socialism. He created it, yeah. So he never got to see his baby just get destroyed. If you want to think about it that way, yeah. Yep. So, but, so that's why I guess my, my, so the pure form of socialism is impossible. Mm. Now there's a new baby, there's now a new form of socialism where they've, they've sensed this debate mm-hmm. of papers, Lange and Mises, right? Or, okay. Now it's like, okay, we, socialism now has price. Mm-hmm. So then what is now, like now with pricing being involved, right? With socialism, what's now the difference between, like, how, how does that really function now? So it's still centrally planned. So what, what these pro, I guess, you know, for lack of a better phrase, they're pro-socialist economists at the time, what, what they end up starting to push is kind of a, a mixture of some market actions mm. with a central planner. So you would have a, a planner that is taking in all sorts of information 
from all sorts of individual, you know, people that need X, Y, and Z. And then I believe like bureaus that would be, you're running the trains. Okay. They, they know what they need too. So they'd be reporting all these needs, all these different bureaus for different industry would be reporting all of these needs to the central planner. And then in this case, they would argue the central planner sets prices and allows the firms to then purchase at the price, the consumers to purchase at the price, whatever they need. So then how would you keep from people with special interests influencing? That's a different, that's a different conversation. So the. This is another reason why why I love this little academic debate that yeah. went on back in the day. One of the very first things that that Mises and Hayek say, they say, okay, there are power dynamics here within this idea of socialism that seem so likely to corrupt the individual in charge mm-hmm. that it's an untenable idea. And the response was, well, we're economists. We're not sociologists. Mm. You know, we're we're not discussing whether power can corrupt people. We're discussing okay. whether this market system could work. And so they have to then take a step back and say, okay, institutionally, what could be the issues? And the first thing they come up with is price. Okay. What else did they come? Because my brain wants to run towards everything else. Like my brain wants to run towards if right. this is the case, then why are politicians you know, pushing socialism if it just can't work. And so those are, mm-hmm. that's where I want, like my brain wants to go. But in this debate, was there any other thing? So if prices is number one, socialism can't work because there needs to be price and price conveys information in a market. Is that a good way to sum- summarize it? I would, yeah. I would summarize it that way. I told you I have a deep IQ, yeah. IQ of 10. You passed, um, And then what else? What else was in that debate kind of like crumble Karl Marx's baby? Okay. So are you familiar with F.A. Hayek? No, oh, okay. So he was a a very well known uh, economist. He really kind of became, uh, I guess, to his public notoriety in the excuse me forties. Yeah, he writes the the Road to Serfdom, which I'm I'm sure some of your listeners probably probably know what that is. It was a very very popular book. Had a whole book tour at the time. I think that was actually that might have been in the fifties. But that was a you know big scathing book of why the Soviet Union isn't working well. Regardless, he brings up something known as the knowledge problem. So within a market, you have different types of knowledge, all right, that is actionable. Some of it's delivered by price. Some of it is not. And I want to make sure I say this. Yes. So knowledge can be a decentralized, all right, so that's from many, many different areas and that you're in, ingesting all of this information. It can be, dis, you know, it's dispersed, right? So yeah. this is this is the price mechanism. Price disperses knowledge, okay? And it's also tacit a little bit, which is implied, right? All of these can potentially be measured, but a lot of them can't. Mm. So when you're talking about calculation, you need to know, like I said earlier, you need to know how much of what material to spread out. You need to know how much of what good to disperse to these you know, individuals. You need to know everybody's needs. There are some things within this system that kind of by happenstance come about when we're talking about just a market. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of luck involved, a lot of trial and error that if you step back and try to actively plan it, you're not going to be able to successfully do so. Mm. 
Now, th- this is the portion of the, uh, th- this is where the debate's left open. Publicly, the you know, pro-socialist side actually wins this because the final argument here is Hayek's knowledge problem. And it's effectively that there are things that happen within a market setting that you can't measure. We're social scientists. We're not physicists. So I can't tell you, for example, what the inflation rate will be at this time next year. Mm -hmm. I can't. I don't know. No one knows. It's not just my lack of skill as an economist. No one could do it. And if anyone is saying that they can, they're trying to sell you something. I, I I don't know what they're doing. They're wrong. So- this is kind of the where where it ends. You've got people who would support this knowledge problem idea, the, this fact that there are things you could not have foreseen, can't control for. There's mm. information dispersed that you know you don't have access to if you're the central planner. And there are those that disagree. But in order, in order for socialism to function correctly, right? And I know that you're saying that when it comes to like, I don't, I guess what I'm not quite connecting the dots with that argument is if you, yeah, we don't know what's going to happen. That That's fine. But right. like, that's a problem for both capitalism and socialism, right? Not quite. So uh, let's look at what, what economists kind of, kind of do, at, at least what people think we do. Okay. Calculate equilibrium, right? So where the price level should mm-hmm. be in a supply and demand context in an, in an individual market. The information that it takes for me to do that is produced by the market. Okay. Okay. So in order for me to look at an industry and say, all right, here is, you know, roughly where the price and and demand level ought to be at, at least insofar as I could give you an estimate on that, I need information and knowledge that is produced by the interworkings of this market, of this industry. So if you take away, if you take a step back, mm. this is all retrospective. None of this is predictive. Mm. So Hayek's verbiage is it's information ex post required ex ante. So what this means is I need information in order to accurately plan all of this stuff. Right. I would need information generated after the fact before it ever starts. Mm. That's just a logical impossibility. Yeah, yeah, right. So effectively, that's the argument. It's this idea that you need ex post knowledge, Mm. ex ante. Which you can't get. Can't get. Mm. It's a very common logical fallacy too. And what what's what's an example of that? Like where people... Like like, uh, just, it's a debate term. Oh, really? Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So then when you when you pivot that to talk about capitalism, so if socialism in Karl Marx's purest form can't function because there's no price, information issues and everything else right. in which I know you talk about that's also potentially con for capitalism. What is in your mind is capitalism where it's a free market is that the best economic process? Is that or or, or theory or I don't know how else to say that. And then, like, I guess, what would be the cons of capitalism? Um, what are the pros of capitalism? We just kind of talked about the issues with in that debate. But, like, when we, when, if we jumped over to capitalism, which I think we kind of talked about socialism, what, what would you say about capitalism, kind of like we just talked about socialism? Like, what are your yeah. thoughts on that? 
Uh, well, well, first, I want to I want to make clear with with the progression there with, with socialism too, because I think it's important to remember that you have Marx's version of socialism, mm-hmm. which is effectively crippled by price theory, okay. and then you have the adjustment after the fact, which involves in bringing in the price mechanism. And that would be to what's social. popular today. Yes, but that would be where the knowledge problem really exists. Okay, because yes, it it exists in in Marx's original, you know set up for for lack of a better word but hayek is primarily responding to the adjustment mm. there after the fact because now if you include price why could it still not work so that's the question you don't you, know what's you still don't know what's gonna happen exactly right. so so yeah i just want to make sure that was, that was no, clear no, for all clear. the listeners yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now for for capitalism yes I, I would say it is the it's the best solution now all the negatives to it i would define as short run so could it lead to like really large firms and monopolies? Yes. Is that position incredibly unstable in the long run? Yes, absolutely. So with monopolies, let's, let's, let's pause here. People believe that we need more regulation to stop the monopolies. Right. In theory, does it make economic sense to actually say if we actually had less regulation monopolies would not last as long is i guess is my question is regulation actually helping monopolies stay in power longer so so we got some layers all right was that a good question uh, that's that- a very it's a very good question it's a okay. very good question okay. yeah sure. i like the question i just okay. want to i just want to there there are layers to it so your, your first layer are there regulations that help monopolies stay in power or at least large firms because we don't mm-hmm. outside of like you know, electrical monopolies, right? Which are, of like course, PTE government and stated, yeah. right? Yeah. Outside of those types of examples, there aren't true monopolies right now. Mm. There are firms with very large market shares. Define the market however you want. You know, we can get funny with the numbers, but there are very large firms. So are there large firms that are using, you know, regulations and pushing for more regulations such that they can stay in power longer? Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Is it a good idea to regulate monopolies so that they don't you know, pop up more or even large firms? I say no. And it, it would lean on this idea of markets being more of a process than a, a like steady state of being. There's admittedly some back and forth on this within you know the, the different schools of thought and economics, but my position would be to look at you know, I like to use the example of like the kid game, King of the Hill, right? King of the Hill. You're, you're fighting Classic. with your friends to get up on the top of the hill. Well, well, imagine you're playing that on a big stack of gravel, okay? That's the market. That's your market process. Everyone's fighting to get to the top. The moment you get to the top, not only is everyone else trying to knock you down, your footing's unstable too, right? So if you look at like Google right now, who 10 years ago would have thought that ChatGPT would be a major competitor to Google in 2024. Right. Well, they are, and it's hurting Google's market share. It's hurting their firm. But, you know, yeah. we wanted to regulate no them back yeah. then too, right? right? So the the point is, once you reach the top, not only are you fighting everyone that's below, there's also like this other pile of gravel where someone could just jump up and, you know, body slam you off the top yeah. anyway, right? Like it, so it's so unpredictable. Was, there was zero regulation for... Testing, creativity, you know, people like there's always going to be someone with a new idea, Mm -hmm. better idea to potentially topple the person that's currently in charge or the company. There's always going to be new innovation. Now, it might not happen 
20 years, it might take 20 years for that cycle to take place. I mean, you look at like, you know, even like the rock, like, like people that were huge, like the Rockefeller family, for example, like, you know, like there were times where you had massively successful companies that just aren't anymore. And, and at that time, people were probably like, this company's never going anywhere, but, but it did. It did. So then now to be clear, those that have massive antitrust action against them, you know, I got I, I, to knock them down and split them up. I do want to make sure that that's clear too. I wonder you know? what would, what would have happened if that didn't if that didn't take place. Right, that'd be interesting. And that and that would be kind of what what I am arguing. If you take away the the ability for companies to help solidify their position through regulation, that that's the prerequisite to that, which is an issue right now too. So I don't think there's an easy answer here. You think that at its core, it's all about control. Like the reason, so if we strapped up the average politician that's pushing so- socialism, right, to a lie detector test. Okay. And I said, and we asked him the question, do you believe socialism is the best form? I'd be curious to A, what their answer would be. B, I wonder if you can't control a free market because that's by definition, right. it's a free market, right? Government likes control. They like controlling things. So if you like controlling things, what is the best form of economic theory that you would want to have? It'd be socialism. Because then if you're, if government and the theory of socialism is the main guy mm-hmm. that sets the prices, that sets all the stuff, as a government official, you'd be like, wait a second. So either I could be powerless or powerful. What school of thought would I like to attain to? Do you, do you wonder if that's the reason so many people even subconsciously adhere to socialism because as a theory that they want to push because it just gives more power to the government. So I thought you were taking this in a slightly different direction and that's where I'm going to go with it. So that's fine. We'll, I we'll, we'll, you just, out. we'll just run with it. I, I, to me, I think there's something maybe a little deeper going on even with people, you know, voters, right? Not, not just politicians. I, I think this kind of applies to everybody. I've started to split people politically, you know, in my own mm-hmm. head canon, based on how comfortable you are with the unknown versus how instinctually you want to control it and, and get an outcome. Because, you know, with a lot of these issues, especially when we're talking about, you know, firms, yeah. right? We're, we're directly dealing with the market. This is, this is true with international trade too. If you look at the problem and deep down, we know that we can't practically control the outcome. Best we can hope for is to influence it. How comfortable are you letting it be, letting it play out and understanding, you know, we might win, we might lose. I'm going to let it go, knowing that that's probably best in the long run. Or does that feeling of unease kind of creep in and I, I know we can't control it, but Gosh, we need to try. You know what I mean? So I, I that's been more my perspective recently on, on how I've looked. Because, I don't know, I mean, you, you could you can make an argument that maybe there's a lot of sinister action going on. I, I find it easier to take that out and, and wonder why if everyone is being more or less truthful. As truthful as you could be that's in politics. That's a big if, though. Yeah, I know, I know. That's a big but if. at the end of the day, you know, people do think there's a lot at stake. So understanding that and weighing that against how powerful that instinct of 
gosh, we just, you know, we need this type of outcome. I wonder how much that, that ends up influencing decision-making. I mean, that's best case scenario if, if that's what they want. It's like they're just trying to want what's best for humanity and well, this is the yeah. only way they think it's going to happen if they control it, right? Practically, it could lead to the very same situation you had, you had outlined. I, and obviously, you know, politicians themselves can get seduced by power, right? You know, there's yeah. plenty of history on that. But, you know, in terms of like people that, you know, look at like the, the green regulations, right? We're, we're trying to really push electric cars. We're really trying to cut emissions. And on one hand, you know, would it probably be great if we could like cut short this big problem that's up on our doorstep? Yeah, absolutely. But then at the same time, like, how do you know what your push is going to fix it? Right. And if you let it go, how do you know there wouldn't have been a fix that developed anyway? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, especially with, even with the electrical, but like the, the government just decided electric is the way. That is the right. only the And it very well way. could be the future, right? I mean, it dude, could be the future of cars. Coal. Like, I don't see how it's much better, but well, whatever. Well, I mean, outside the, of that, yeah. right? Practically, electric vehicles, they it could be the future of cars. It could. I don't know that. But, what, but in a capitalistic society, there Maybe would be something freedom else develops. to have other things to develop. But if you put every incentive program, every tax break, every... And now there's less innovation on other options. Correct. And so... With that being said, because that is what is currently happening. Correct. Everyone's releasing an EV. If you had to say America 2024, are we more socialistic or capitalistic? If like on a scale, like 50-50, are we still leaning? Do we still have more capitalism in our genes than we do socialism in America today? Or do we actually potentially have more socialism and less capitalism, like a 50-50 scale? Like what would be the ratio of like, if you had to put it into a percentage? So when you first brought up this topic, you asked if there was like a third option. Yeah. There kind of is. It's called the mixed market economy. It's a a honest to goodness attempt to go 50-50 between both options. So very common things that would fall under this are public zoos because the zoo is a public-private partnership. It's in large part funded by the local government, okay. but you have an individual firm that is running, operating it, and doing all the marketing and stuff for it, right? Yeah, right. Uh, you, you could look at like a, a school board that is public soliciting bids to renovate their school. Public-private partnership, right? So when, you've get, when you get these intermixings between the public side being the government and the private being individual firms, you get this kind of cocktail of a mixed market economy, okay. right? And I would say that a lot of our systems right now are produced with that in mind. So you see quite a bit of subsidies to industries to try and pop up. And this was obviously big back when housing crisis happened, right? Financial bailouts. Yeah, financial yeah. bailouts to banks. Banks are firms, they're institutions, right? Well, they basically received a massive subsidy okay. from, from the government. That's a mix. That's you know, Once these things start getting mixed in together, that's when you get to this third thing called the mixed market economy. And I would say that's where we are. Can that function healthily without a bad result in the future? I don't think so. I it, guess without like one or the other coming out at the end, if that makes sense what I'm saying. Like socialism oh, or I capitalism. See. Like, is there a world where this can function and everything kind of be okay? Or is it always going to yield towards one or the other will win at the end? So either 
socialism will win at the end of this mixed bag or capitalism will win at the end. Both can't co- like can both coexist in any type of like healthy economic manner. It's a good question. I don't think I have a good answer for you. Obviously, Marx himself and quite a few other socialists would argue there's a progression, right? You know, you kind of, you've got capitalism, you've got late stage capitalism, you've got this middle ground, and then you got socialism that pops out at the end. Joseph Schumpeter, actually an economist that I, I generally like quite a bit, but he writes in the book, Capitalism, Socialism, and Democracy, that as consumers continue to be more and more separated from the actual market process, right? So the actual production of some goods, the actual act of going to a place to purchase things, think things of that nature. As you get more and more separated, you are more prone to being sympathetic to socialism. And then in that way, you know, well, it is a, inevitable. It's a slippery slope argument at some point. Like That's what those you, are saying. If you, yeah. if I don't you know if I'd make it, but. Open the water tab of socialism over time. It could just like, the safest play for people who believe in capitalism is to allow no socialism. Maybe. In theory. I, like, like I said, I don't myself have a very good answer for, for this one. I would just say that there are people on both sides of this argument that have made that exact argument that, that you just said. There are those that you know think that the mixed market economy is a fantastic idea if and it would just to... go on in, per, in perpetuity and be great. Like, but that's like a any... utopian world though. I, right, like it's that functioning okay right now. Is it? Yeah, all our metrics are down. Down? Is, is that a good thing? Yeah, inflation rate is down. Unemployment rate is down. I think there are some pretty big long-term concerns, but you know, things are clicking at the moment. At at the moment. Yeah. So so it works as long as right now we're happy. It works. Hey, welcome to politics. <laughs> so that you actually that this is a good segue. I think we. So I guess if I'm going to, I like trying to summarize on the podcast because like I've always, like if, if decide no, but someone said like the the key of a good host is a host should be able to ask the exact question I as a listener was thinking and then be able to summarize it in a way that I can understand in case I miss something. Right. So socialism can't work. Correct. Pure form of socialism can't work because the pure form of socialism does not allow for price. There's a since the debate in the early 1900s with Hayek and Mises, Mises. Mises they have created a new form of an updated form of socialism with within price. the debate, actually. Okay. Yeah. With price now, price and socialism can now be happy together with their new kind of, you know, f- baby, you know, offspring of, of socialist mm-hmm. ideas. And so right now, the question is do we trust a free market more than we trust an actual entity to set things? That's kind of at the core. That's kind of the debate between capitalism, socialism. Do you, is your risk tolerance? Okay. Trusting a free market or do you prefer having someone control? In, in terms of whether ordinary people support one or the other, I would say that is what's going on in terms of does this mixture of, the price mechanism Mm -hmm. into a socialist setting. Is that tenable? No, because of the knowledge problem. Mm. These are both separate from a mixed market economy, which is effectively a public-private partnership. Gotcha. Which is more of what we're seeing today. Would like Obamacare be an example of that? Obamacare was more or less single-payer, I would Lean more. But that's a socialistic ideal, though, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. Where, that's where I was heading with that. Yeah. Okay. 
So it's not even a mixed bag. That's just like pure socialism. I, yeah, if it's purely, if it is something that is solely government provided, you can make a okay. pretty quick leap to saying it, it's potentially socialist, okay. socialistic. So you mentioned something briefly because you mentioned inflation and jobs, right? Mm-hmm. As far as like currently being happy and numbers looking good. I know that recently we just hit, a, I think, a record for the S&P 500. So in theory, the economy could look good on paper, right? I Well, it is, yeah. Well, I mean, it looks good on paper, I guess is what it says. I don't think the American family, I don't think America feels that. I don't think the average family feels that. That's what, That was at a debate that I had with someone else. Like I know the average, of, at least I work with, um, tons of employees every year. Every single employee I talk to right now is saying times are hard, things are tight. No. 95% of people, things are hard. I have 170 business owners that I per- personally currently work with. I am adding more to the fold every single month. And almost every single business owner says things are tight, thing, budget's tight, high cost. It's like a rough time to run a business. So how can, when you talk to the person yeah. in America, they're saying Things are tight. It sucks. But then you look at the numbers and you t- hear a politician, like you hear Biden's uh, White House secretary, Jira or whatever her name is, Pierre or whatever, be like, our economy has never been stronger. And she, and then you have the stats to prove it. Quickly. I'm not saying, I don't know the stats exist, but I'm just saying, but why, why do, does the average American not feel it? Like, why does the average American have more debt than they've ever had before? Inflation rates being insanely high to where their paycheck doesn't matter as much as it used to cost of homes being high. like how then if our economy is doing so well why does nobody feel it so g- fantastic question it would be a disservice if i did not at first bring up that there is a little bit of politicization going on here at least as far as surveys go if you are a republican and a republican is in the office of the presidency you are far more likely to be happy with the way things are going vice versa is well, true as me- well I, I don't think right, that's right. the full story. I, well, it would I'm just, just saying, be a like, disservice this, if I didn't my, bring it up. No, I understand. But in my question, I am talking, I am like, this is yes. just purely insurance conversations I'm having with. Yeah. And by the way, Detroit is significantly more left-leaning. Yes, it is. Significantly. So I'm probably talking like 70, 30 Democrats to Republicans. And then even the Democrats are saying it's tight. Because, right. because politics on their brain, I'm not saying like, do you think Joe Biden's doing a great job? They would probably say things are tight. And I love Joe Biden. But my point is like, I, yeah. That so I understand your point, but like in this, when I've talked to actual people outside of politics, just asking them like, "Hey, how are things right now?" They're all like, "I'm cutting everything I can. Things are tight. Yeah. I don't have savings." My my right. only point is but, to to get into what I'm about to get into without at least bringing up that there is a yeah, little yeah, bit yeah, of yeah. a poll. You know, there is a, a little bit of partisanship involved. Sure, I don't would, would yeah, be I'm a sure. disservice. That's so that okay. that was all. Fair, what fair. what I would say to practically answer your question is the inflation rate. The inflation rate is down right now, okay? It's a rate. It's not a set number. So when you see the inflation is at, you know, three point whatever percent, that doesn't mean that, you know, since it was at seven and we're down to three, that we've actually decreased inflation by 4%. That means that inflation is still growing at three point whatever percent. So practically... What this means is, yes, everything is a lot more expensive than it was because you start at 2020, right before you know all the COVID shutdowns and all of this, you had a massive increase in printing from the Federal Reserve, which increases inflation. There's a little bit of a delay, starts to peak there in late 21, early 22, gets up to 7, 8, 
right? Really, really high. Yeah. And then now it's kind of trickled back down to three as they've stopped and halted their printing cycles there at the Federal Reserve, but it's still positive. So your inflation rate is calculated off of a consumer price index, which is, you know, we pick a basket of goods that we think most people are purchasing and is representative of the time it shifts with whatever. Point is that basket of goods is still a lot more expensive today than it was at this time last year and is still even more expensive the year prior. It's a, it's a time series thing and it's a rate. Mm -hmm. So the fact that it's positive means that prices are still high. Yeah. So, yeah. So, so then, and it's not going to go down. Right. That's my, so that's my, that's my question. So inflation goes up. So the, the, in, in definition of inflation is where maybe in, I might butcher this definition. Basically the higher the inflation, the less of our dollars worth, right? More or less. Yeah. Okay. So high inflation, bad. Unless there's reasons for the high inflation. I mean, no, high inflation, Ben. Okay, cool. So let's just say 7% inflation. Everything costs more now. Groceries cost more. Gas costs more. Every, every just to live in America. Now you are 7% poorer than you were the previous year. If, 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 or, mm -hmm. whatever, or whatever the difference was. If it was 3 to 7, you're now 4% poor or whatever. Just by existing. When inflation rates go down, do companies, when they price goods, do they take an account for that and move their prices back down to match inflation? Or because inflation was high, everyone got used to paying a certain things for goods. It now is, it stays there and their profit margin continues to increase. So like if everything is really expensive, we're get used to paying that. Do companies come down with price when it comes to inflation? Does that make sense? Or, do they, or do they, do they just normally keep it there? Um, so there, there are a couple of things that, that I want to talk about here. The, the quickest one is to, to again, it, it's a, it's a rate. So the fact that the rate is positive when it was seven, that means, you know, if it was seven last month and it's three this month, it means that last month were only 3% more inflation, right? Right. So prices are still on an aggregate, right? This isn't, some things are going to be up. Some things are going to be down on the average, things are still more expensive and your dollar as opposed to the total is less valuable. It's constantly going up. So even though inflation rate went down, that doesn't necessarily mean that things are inherently you know, cheaper or that your dollar is more valuable. It's still less valuable than when you last looked. And so the only- Just by the 3%. So the only way to beat this from a- is to either get- You need it negative for prices to go down. Or for our- overall income to increase by X percentage rate to, to match inflation? Uh, not quite. So, so inflation is almost entirely a monetary phenomenon. So what I mean by that is it is almost entirely derived by how much money is in circulation. If there's a lot of money in circulation, your single dollar is worth less than if there's not a lot. That's not Literally how the calculation is done, but conceptually that's what's going on. So when the Federal Reserve started printing more cash to give, you know, help fund the stimulus packages during the COVID you know, yeah. lockdowns, they printed more, which then later on. But they knew that this was going to happen. Yes, they, they did it willingly. Yeah. So why, like they, but they just didn't care. Why didn't they care? Or they, not that they didn't well, care. Why did they? Why did they? So, so there's an argument that you can kind of or oil or, or gas on a fire, mm -hmm. right? Like if things are down, if you inject a lot of cash, right. you'll increase consumption. The whole and, definition of the word stimulus, right? 
basically. Now that's debatable. There are people both sides of that within economics, right? And, and within this field, that is not a you know set in stone reality. When you're in a recession, not you know there are those that would say spend, but there are quite a few economists that would say don't don't spend at all. You need to kind of let it let it progress through. Let it happen. So. Yes. That's where you get into politics where it's like, well, we don't want a recession to happen on our watch. Mm, kick the so, can. Yeah. The the other thing I wanted to bring up, you know, because you were talking about prices. People, firms rather charge more when, when inflation is up than when ideally than when inflation is down. But to really dive into, I guess, talking about that, I think we need to discuss what price is. And price is not a product of input costs. So when, at least economically, when we're looking at a firm, a firm does not go down its balance sheet and go, okay, I'm spending this much on labor. I'm spending this much for the, you know, the property that we're in. I'm spending this much on the machines. And because of all these inputs, here's a, you know, level of profit percentage above that that I want. And that's the price I'm going to charge. That's not how it works. Practically what price is, is it is an expression of value from the consumer, right? So if you're a firm and you're trying to set a price, if you've never brought this, this product to a market before, what you're doing is trying to anticipate the level at which consumers who would buy your product would value it at. What the demand is. More or less, right? So price is subjective. Yep. It is not a product of input costs. Price is purely a, a function of what people will buy it at. And what they value it at. So when you say, you know, inflation went up, our prices went up, part of that is driven by the increased costs and the the decrease in value of the dollar. Okay. Part of it is. The other part is that there are a lot of people that want that product that are willing to pay at that level and that value it at that level. So, so it keeps it at that level. Or so they, it keeps or it at that level. they raise it because they know they can get people still to buy it. Right. Level. So you have two kind of conflicting portions of this, right? If you're the firm, you need to have a price above your level of costs in order for you to produce the product at all. Otherwise, it's not going to be worth it. But if the consumer does not value your good above that level of input costs. You adjust accordingly. Right. Well, you're not going to sell it. It's unless not you, worth unless you. Unless you were lower the price, right? Then you could. Well, why it. would you? Because you take a loss. Right. 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 So, so here, so here's where you know it, it kind of comes through, at least to me. What makes something valuable is almost entirely a function of what people value it at, not necessarily profit margin or the profit margin. Has anyone ever done a study on the effect of credit cards and cost of goods? So, do you think that? And the, the reason I ask that is. I mean, I think everyone, you know where I'm going with this, but if everyone had a debit card, credit cards did not exist. So you either had a debit card or cash and you saw something when you looked at your bank account, well, you can't afford it. So you don't buy it. Yep. Well, now people can buy significantly more than their means. So then that muddies the pool, that muddies the pool of what people can actually afford if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Because now people are saying, yeah, I, I can buy that even though they don't actually have the real cash to be buying that thing. Yeah. And so th- so then companies still keep things at the same price or because people are buying it, but then there actually is no money to actually support their purchase because it's all now in debt. Well, they still get the money. 
they get they get the money, but now the consumers at a loss because now they have debt and they're paying mm-hmm. interest on it. I don't know. I like I wonder how that would affect our economy if credit cards just went away. If it would cripple us for a time being because the buying power of the average American would go down significantly. But I suspect over, that would be the case. Over time would be better for us. Maybe my question. Not- That's not, that was my question. Like over time has like has credit cards hurt the US economy more than they've helped it? <laughs> Everyone listening, I'm sorry. I just keep like smacking the side of my microphone. Anyway, I I would say there's a little bit of a moral judgment here. Not like, not in the bad way, right? Yeah, it yeah. sounds like you you want to help people not be in debt. And, right. and I get it. It's a good cause. But but practically, what then is the the policy solution to, to that sort of idea, right? If credit cards are bad, do we need to take it away because some people misuse it? No, absolutely not. I'm just, well, I think that was it was more of a theoretical question. Like yeah. in theory, has credit cards if we if we imagine the US economy without credit cards, if credit cards just never were existed, I wonder where the average American would be financially versus where they're at now. If it's actually helped the average American be able to create more businesses with credit, you know, like yeah. take blow like or or if I'm just curious if that study's ever been done on the effect of credit cards. I, I've not seen it. I've not seen it. It may exist. I would implore you to go look for it. And if you find it, definitely send it to me. You know, I'm, I'm open to the idea. It yeah. definitely could. Know, just I, I'm agnostic. I have no that. idea. Yeah. The one. So to wrap up, I mean, we've actually already talked for like an hour and a half, which is insane. Yeah, it's great. I want to talk about one more thing. So this is going to get a little political. I'm going to try not to make it political, <laughs> but it is what is happening. I guess I don't know the effect that it could have on the economy. So okay. I want to talk about immigration and, and economics. Right. So throughout, obviously, we know there's a big immigration. You can view it as a problem. I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. I'm going to call it a problem because that's how I view it as a problem. Go for it. You have a bunch of people that are currently not U.S. citizens. They're not taxpayers coming into the country. I think we had like 1.3 million last year in just 2023 coming to the country illegally. That's a lot of people. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people working jobs. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people not paying taxes. Just That's just facts. Now, whether that's good or bad, we can argue that on a different podcast. But the the fact is, there's a lot of people that aren't paying taxes that are working jobs. Now, potentially working jobs that Americans wouldn't work anyway. That's, again, beside the point. But the point is, that's a lot of people coming in and, I guess, disrupting what would be a normal taxpayer job. Yes. How does that affect the economy? And why... It, like yeah, I'll leave it there. How does it affect the economy? Does it affect the economy? And has it hurt, helped? Like, is that something that it, an economist would be like, that's a problem? I guess is my question. All right, I'm, I'm going to try and uh, it's a thought experiment that we're going to do, and it, it's going to be relevant at the end. All right, okay. so Alrighty. let's say jump in, baby. Say there's a firm opens up a factory in okay. a different country. Okay. Right. We're not analyzing this from an American perspective. We're analyzing this from the country that that it opened up the factory in. Yep. There are going to be new jobs that this firm's going to, you know, whatever create, you know, for for lack of a better word, even though I, I don't like the terminology there. But okay. there there are going to be people that are going to be working this these jobs. There are going to be a lot of people left behind. Is this a net positive for that that little country? Probably. Probably. Yeah. So, th- so there are people that are going to argue that it's not. They're going to say that, well, if you just stayed out of the way, everyone would have been better off because we left some people behind when we created these slightly higher paying jobs, right? Okay. So, so that's going to be an argument. So now let, let, we'll go ahead and, and we'll look at immigration in the United States. You have a lot of people 
that are coming in and working cheap jobs mm-hmm. more or less that otherwise are likely unfilled or are ro- robotic labor of some sort. Mm-hmm. Okay. So practically this is a trade. Mm-hmm. We're, we're trading the money that we're, that we're paying them, them for them to be able to be here, have access to things that we have and, you know, hopefully they live a better life. I don't know if that's a hundred percent, but that's at least the the pitch that, okay. that that people tend to make. This is a net positive in the same way as that firm going to that other country is a net positive for that country because it opens up a lot of other opportunity as well, not strictly in those places that you know in those industries, but on the side. Mm. You know, there are more people now that are not working those jobs. They're free to do other things now. Mm -hmm. There are other opportunities that now not having this specific job filled by this, you know, by American workers who are forced to be Mm -hmm. uh, charged more, right? There are other opportunities that get opened up on the sides, uh, even within the same company. So it's it's a trade. Trade's good. Trade's mutually beneficial. So, so most con- economists so, are going to so say it's good. So to continue the thought experiment. It's good. It's good. So is it good to have immigrants or is it good to have illegal immigrants? That's Because to me, that's a big difference. To me, America has always been doing the trade of like we've had people yep. come in here legally, working jobs that maybe potentially the average American didn't want to work, wouldn't work, whatever. Good trade, right? Right. So is the trade immigrants or is the trade we are actually willing to bend the law to allow people in here illegally so that X, Y, Z can happen. Like, is, like from an, like, or are there more ramifications of them being illegal that actually could hurt the United States? You want to talk about the economy. Right. So from just from pure, from your, cause I can have someone else that's not an economist on, we mm-hmm. can talk about the, the politics of like the safety of Americans. Sure. And like, that could be a completely, I mean, we could talk about that now if you want to, but I think, from a pure economic standpoint, will um, so if 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 America, I guess they put in if America looks at okay, one point three million people that are currently non taxpayer citizens entered the United States last year under the Biden administration. Fact, cool. What does that do to my money? If that's where we said like, what does that do to the economy of the United States? Like helps, helps. That's that's the question. So, so it, like if, if, we we're, keep if it we're right, right purely there. going to talk about the the economics of this, all right. Okay. The question that I would pose to you is practically what is different between someone that went through all of the proper channels to show up versus someone that just migrated over the border to do a farming job? They pay taxes. Functionally, what's the difference? They pay taxes. Yeah. What do taxes fund? Things that hopefully would be less tax increases because there's more people paying into them. Sure. In theory. So that's what that would be. That would be the only answer I would have would be taxes. If you had yeah. 1.3 million, if, if tomorrow... We could say, hey, we're going to have 1.3 million people start paying taxes. That's a significantly, that's a significant boost. Now, you know, a lot of them wouldn't be tax eligible, right? Because they don't make enough? Right. Okay, we have (laughs) 400,000. Not as big of a boost as you want. Okay. That would be my only, that was my, that was the main thing. So from an economic standpoint, taxes. And the benefit's going to outweigh the cost, right? If you really look at the production increase of this extraordinarily cheap labor that you are otherwise not able to access, different story if we're less restrictive 
on going overseas and across the borders ourselves with manufacturing opportunities to to do this, right? Yeah, because from a from a pure economic stance, sorry, Dakota, it should be able to go yeah. both ways. Yeah, is, is what a, we're saying. Yeah, and also even just from a cost of labor, cost of goods, you are now right. able to pay people under what would be legally allowed if they were a legal citizen, mm-hmm. right? Hypothetically speaking, because technically you can pay them whatever you want. There's no minimum wage. Correct to an illegal immigrant. So then you could be getting significantly more value, hypothetically speaking, because of the regulations that are put in. Now, now understand too that it, this is not only good for the firm, right? The cheaper labor, definitely a plus for the firm. But also look at the individual, right? The worker. So, you know, a lot of times, this, by the way, makes me so popular at parties. <laughs> look, I'm sweatshops, sure. sweatshops okay. in China, yeah. okay? okay? Child labor. Yep. Those Probably. kids- Yep. are in families that do not earn a lot of money at all. Correct. The family needs cash. Yep. Is that kid in a terrible situation? Yes. Is it probably a good thing that they're able to work and earn money and help their family and hopefully all of them don't starve? Absolutely. Yep. It's funny. Side note. And by, by the way, for the people listening, this is a thought exercise of economics only. <laughs> yeah. Like I am not at all, if you know me at all, for illegal immigration whatsoever, I think you're breaking the law and we can have that conversation at a different point. But from an economic theory, sometimes it's good to strip back, like if we're talking pure numbers, that's that's the goal of this whole podcast is what- I appreciate it. So like, what does the economics teach of, and like, that's a very interesting thought was, I think that a lot of people would be like, oh, you know, the illegal immigration is killing our economy. Well, actually that might not be the case. That's a that's a cool conversation to have. It's good for the people that are working the jobs. It's good for the firms that are hiring that jobs out for lower cost labor. And it's good for the people generally over time. It's not going to be good immediately to the yeah. people that have lost the opportunity to have those jobs. Yeah. But over time, because of increased production, mm-hmm. because of new innovation, yeah. they're going to have opportunities that they otherwise wouldn't have had. Yeah. It's an entire net positive. Yeah. Now, Which, you know, Take the legal stuff as you will. Correct. I'm not which speaking is to that at all. Which that is a very interesting thing. And then and and again, I'm not saying that there because it's a net positive. Therefore, we should just let it happening. That is not what all what I'm saying. Just to clarify there, but from a thought exercise perspective, I mean that's a very interesting fact that that it's not killing us uh, from an economy perspective. More people would understand that anytime a trade happens, it is inherently mutually beneficial. Because if you make an argument that it wasn't that one side got robbed, you're making a judgment on information that you don't have. So the fact that something transpired indicates that at least to the parties that negotiated it, they believe it to be mutually beneficial. Mm -hmm. If you start to analyze and operate a lot of things in that way, Mm -hmm. you know, everything from buying a car to uh, the U.S. trade deficit nationally, right? It paints a very, very different picture at that point than what the I perceive at least to be the the traditional uh, quote-unquote narrative. Interesting. Yeah, and I guess, yeah, that's a fascinating, this is a fascinating thing to think through. The one thing I was going to say, you mentioned uh, sweatshops and uh, (laughs) not being popular at parties. Because I I would uh, not advocate for the minimum wage either, which also makes me just so popular. Yeah, no, me either. I mean, I think that's, well, that's anti-capitalism. I mean, that's what it is. It's more regulation. But so in college, we had a, (laughs) it was our capstone class. Okay. All right. We had this software that was like, so basically like uh, every person had to create a shoe company. And there was this software that we had. It was like you were like in groups of three or four and you could choose anything you wanted. You could choose outsourcing. You could choose 
the price of the shoe, the quality of the shoe. And it was like, a, everyone was in the same market. So it kind of created it, its own like market conditions for everybody. Ooh, yeah. cool, a really cool thing. I think I think the team that won was the actually the dumbest team because they just threw in whatever numbers and they got lucky. True story. But um, but it was a really well, if that doesn't tell you what the market process is. I don't know what. Yeah, <laughs> a good lesson in economics, I guess. But we decided to outsource our shoes, or so so because it was significantly cheaper. And so our professor was like ethically, you know, like so. Then he he started talking about the ethics of of outsourcing, and this was in front of the whole class. And he's like, Dylan, your team decided to outsource. Have you considered that you bended your ethics to allow child labor? And I'm like, I didn't bend my ethics at all. And so we had a debate like in front of the whole class yep. on why I think in that scenario, it's a good thing f- like for that happen. And what we actually did is we actually created this huge thing where like, cause it was our company, we could do whatever we want. So we actually created like schooling for the kids. Oh, sure. So nice. we actually like, and what we did like in our company was the average kid only worked like five hours a day of the actual production. And that was still significantly more savings than what we would get to pay an American to do that. And then the other three hours, they actually were in school taught by any, like a teacher. And we actually did the actual math of uh, like for whatever it would have cost for a line worker here in the United States. This is assuming we didn't have robotics. This was like back with it. We didn't have a ro- It was people versus salary here versus salary there. Right. It was still cheaper for us to employ children to work for five hours a week with schooling, with safe environments, with all this stuff than it would be to employ one American. And it was just actually an interesting, interesting yeah. thing. So he was just, he, the teacher couldn't get over the fact that we were still employing children, but the point was it was still better for the company and better for the child because we were right. trying to say, it's like, look, they're going to be way better working with us in a safe, healthy environment than they would be because well, they're going to be working either way. Like that's, I think the one that's thing. That's the other part of it too. Like the people, when they get mad, it's like they will be working somewhere. So if you say all of the companies that actually have ethics and the companies that actually create good working environments, if you force them to pull out, they are going to work somewhere and they actually might now be working in a significantly less good environment than they would have been had you been allowed to stay there. Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll put it, I'll put it this way that the, like I said earlier, the, the family needs the money. Okay. So, you know, we are in a very fortunate position over on this side of the Atlantic ocean the pond. Yeah. Over this side of the pond to sit back and say, well, kids shouldn't have to do that. And for the most part, while this isn't, you know, 100% true, but for the most part, kids here don't, don't have to. And that's lovely. Overseas, that's not always the case, right? If the family, you know, you got a family that has three or four kids, Mm -hmm. they're in extreme poverty and everybody needs to work just to put dinner on the table. Like if you get rid of, child labor you are absolutely family those families yeah. those people those kids it's just even. funny and, and it sucks because yeah. you can't it's win the, well it's just the reality i mean i think that if we wanted and to have a, a reality. Uh, you you know if we want to have a utopian debate then i think we would all agree yeah like i'd be great for a kid to be able to go to school yeah it'd be great easy. yeah it'd be but that's not the reality and on a side note to then to punish companies forcing them to you know, when we talk about American jobs and that, that's completely different, but like if, if you're like, you can't have child labor in other countries, well, it's like those kids will be working somewhere because they have to. That's the reality. We can't change that. We, I'd love to change that. So well, sometimes I think in America, 
it'd be good. <laughs> it'd be good. <laughs> also not very popular viewpoint, but I th- like, what's the stat? I don't know if the, I don't have the actual stat, so don't, you know, crucify me in the comment section, but I think like America's like last to develop adults of like actual contributing citizens to like the, the, <laughs> the whole, like we're last in the age bracket. So like, it's like 25 is the median or 24 is the median of actually like people creating actually any type of help for the mass. And like in other countries, it'll be like 13, 14. And I don't know. I just think that adults, the, what is viewed as adult is very high in the United States compared to any other country, which I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing, but. You can make arguments both ways. Yeah. It's a bunch of, and we also have a bunch of adults that still act like babies. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what that well, means. You know, people are complicated. We are complicated. Uh, last thing I want to go over before we kind of wrap up this podcast. And I think this has been great. I could talk about this stuff forever. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, like we could probably have like a four hour just conversation on economics and, and the, the, I think there's just something powerful to take emotion out of something for a little bit which is why I wanted to have you on the podcast because it's very easy for me to say capitalism is better because I think it's better. Right. You know, because I emotionally believe it's better. I think also, I also believe in the depravity of man. And so I think that socialism, just by me believing that there's actually not like inherent good in every single person that every person actually has been is going to be bad. Socialism can't work in that, in that situation. Just in my worldview, it can't happen. Sure. But that's not, that's my worldview. That's what I believe. But then if there's actually statistics and numbers and actually like theories to back it up, that actually is a good way to think through it as well. The one thing I want to talk about to end it was this question. In 2024, is there anything, is there such thing as a free market in America? Because I don't know, you've probably heard the statistics, you know, you have like, you have like BlackRock, Vanguard and there's a third company that owns like 70% of the companies in the S&P 500. That's a big topic right now, by the way. Yeah. A lot of people are now, you know, we talked about Larry Fink at lunch. We talked about like, you know, is there one man pulling the strings behind the scenes of the economy? Is there three companies that have an influence? Like, is there a free market? So when we invest money into the stock market, can the average American trust that a free market is still going on? Or is the reality something different? that there really is no such thing as a free market in America anymore? Loaded question. I'm good at those. Great. Do um, loaded? I'm sorry. No, you're, you're totally fine. It's a good question. It's, it's a very smart one to ask. I would say two things. One, what we talked about earlier, right? Where just the presence of large firms does not necessarily mean that something has gone wrong in the free market, right? It's our, it is our king of the hill on a, on a pile of gravel example. Just because mm-hmm. a company got really big doesn't mean that there is, you know, not something unforeseen coming up. It doesn't mean that someone below them isn't going to overtake the beauty of market processes is that it breeds innovation, especially over the course of time. So, you know, you brought up Rockefellers and, and other really, really large, you know, Standard Oil, all, all these companies in the past. Yes, there was antitrust action against them. At the same time, you know, you look at iTunes. iTunes was supposed to ruin the music industry. And yeah. lo and behold, here comes Spotify, yeah. right? Knocks them off their perch. Now you got Apple Music. iTunes right. isn't even really a thing so much anymore. You know, eBay was was a threat at one point. I swear, you know, there's always these 
large companies that pop up Mm -hmm. and people are afraid that they're not going to go anywhere. And if the market is allowed to progress and actually be this, this process of innovation and, and be this back and forth that takes place over, over a period of time in the short run. Sure. You know, there, there might be a a near monopoly. There might be an Amazon that that runs the show for a bit. There might be a Google that's going to have over 90% of the search market, Mm -hmm. which, which they do right now. Right. But again, you know, chat GPT pops up. Who who knows what might pop up to compete with Amazon's cloud service? You're, yeah. Again, AI is a total wild card here. So I, I would say that first of all, you know, it's a market process. A market's not just what we're sitting in right now. It, it grows, it changes, it's unanticipated, it's totally unpredictable. Right. And it is a process ab- above anything else. So in terms of can there even be a free market if you have five or six really large firms that own a lot of this, you know, the S&P 500, which by the way is just a segment, right? You know, it's not the entire entire system. Mark, it's not right, every right, right. firm. It's just a few very, very large ones. So could there practically be a free market in that instance? Yes, absolutely. Because again, it's a process. It's not stagnant. It's ever-changing and it's unpredictable. Mm. Now, if you're asking currently, do these firms have a lot of influence because politicians listen to them and institute regulations that restrict competition from coming up and harm the process of innovation? Because you know we're not going to have time to really discuss it too much, but monopolies are terrible innovators. Yeah. Practically, they right. are. So if you have a lot of influence and if you can pay you know, lobbyists and you can pay to charities and and exhibit that influence to get certain regulatory outcomes to maintain your position. Is that a problem right now? Absolutely. Mm. So we're a big yes and a no. Yeah. It's like a yes, but in theory it could work. I think we can go full circle here if we have, and and keep in mind the S and P 500 is not the only place to invest, obviously like that's just one of the, Mm -hmm. you know, this, there's a thousand other ways that you can invest your money. I understand. Yeah. But I do think that is a big concern. That's, a, I mean, even uh, Patrick David Bett, I don't know if you know who that is, but he started an insurance company. He has like probably the biggest, he's up with Rogan, not as quite a big of a podcast, but he has a huge podcast with a huge, huge, huge fan base. Conservative, I think by nature. But that's one thing that he's been talking a lot about and a lot of people are, you know, freaking out about that. But I think it's funny because people that are freaking out about the Black Rocks of Vanguard are like, well, we have to do something. Well, it's like, you can't regulate them. Put them there. Right. Because that's exactly what you're fighting against, you know? And so it's it's an interesting, I guess, an interesting interesting problem. I want to add this really quickly. This is this is straight out of Milton Friedman. Okay, so if anyone wants to back check and, and look it up and read some more about this sort of idea. What I'm about to say is Milton Friedman, mm-hmm. okay. economist that was very, very influential, especially in conservative circles. But he frequently would remind people that being pro-business is not the same as being pro-market, not the same as being pro-capitalism, because capitalism and a free market is a profit and loss system, mm. not just a profit system. When you set up regulations such that you mitigate losses, such that, you know, Things are too big to fail, bailouts, subsidies, things that get in the way of companies falling through the floor. When you start to lean into those things, you're no longer practicing 
free markets. You're no longer practicing capitalism. You've got a profit system. You're trying to make sure everyone makes profit. So I would here like to emphasize that it's a, if a market's going to operate, it's a profit and yeah. loss system. It's a trial. It's an error. It's unexpected. It goes on and there are going to be winners, losers, and nothing's going to stay the same. So when you start to regulate things. Yeah. Everybody can't be winners. I mean, and this, this is probably a bad analogy, but it's even sports, right? You Like sure. there has yeah, to a be a bit. loser. There has to bit, be yeah. a winner. I mean, in the whole movement where everyone's a winner, that's just bull crap. Like that doesn't, <laughs> no, there are winners, there are losers in sports. There are, and for a market to be functioning healthily, there needs to be losers just as many as there are winners. Correct. That's what you're saying. If not more. Mm. Losers than winners. Yeah, yeah. If you think about it, if the process of innovation is so fraught with potential for failure, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a, 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 a structure or a market context where there are, you know, you're, you're needing to pursue innovation mm-hmm. in order to get a leg up, in order to overtake and, and win that, you know, king of the hill game, yeah. right? There are going to be far more failures than there are successes because it's going to be so difficult to reinvent the wheel, but someone's going to do it. Yeah. You just need the one. Yeah. And, and then unseats and everything. And you just need to let the flexibility for people to innovate. Mm-hmm. and let that happen and then right. over time and it might take longer than you want and the, per, the the monopoly so to speak might be in power longer than you wish it would but there is someone that's going to take their place if they're as long to. as you don't get in the way yeah and the problem with america right now is we have a lot of people getting in the way and you have a lot of bailout i mean the you, that, that's just the fact at least in my opinion right now yeah i'm, and, I'm not a fan and, of the subsidies and balance yeah but i also don't know how it would be a massive change for america to ever go away from that um, it would, and we've been this way for a very long time, right? Uh, as well, you know, this does predate the questions we're yeah. we're talking. Yeah. This uh, it's us, that's for sure. And ma- many of these can be traced back to FDR and John Maynard Keynes. Actually, mm-hmm. Keynesianism is an economic thought that we don't have time for, but if yeah. people want to look it up, by all means. Let's well, so have to do a part two of the podcast. Part then we can talk about like Alexander Hamilton, the banking system, and mm-hmm. how that influenced the free government banking. control. Yeah, I don't yeah. know if you've heard of that. I have not. Oh. Fay Hayek again. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And we yeah, didn't also enjoy. talk about crypto and the economy. That was one thing I was going to talk about. But speaking of crypto, we do have a podcast we were just released on cryptocurrencies. So if you're interested in that, you can check that out. <laughs> well, man, I appreciate that. I think if anything, for the listeners, just living a life where you want to learn. If you don't know, ask dumb questions. We talk about that at lunch. Like yeah, if you don't absolutely. know, ask dumb questions. There are probably questions that I asked today that Wes was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, but that's okay. Absolutely not. Yeah, you could say that. You can pay, I'll pick no, it later. No, no, no. But but that's <laughs> that's the that's the beauty of having good conversation is asking questions and then like also putting yourself out there, being willing to be wrong, being willing to to take a loss, and that's how good conversations happen. So as as people listen to this podcast, but this podcast grows, that's what I want this podcast to be shaped on is 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 two people being willing to be wrong and actually have good conversation. I think we had that today. And so I appreciate you coming on the show. I did want to leave you with an opportunity to promote whatever you want to promote. I know you have a cool Substack. I don't know if you want to call it a blog or, or whatever yeah, you want to call blog, it. It is yeah. sweet. So I'll Thank let you, you promote that real quick and I'll do a little quick promotion for you as well. But go ahead. What do you got going on? What do you want people to know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so as you mentioned at the very beginning here, Don, 
I do do a lot within the Pistons content creation space. So, you know, if you guys are Pistons fans local to Detroit, uh, definitely tune into the Pistons Pulse by the Detroit Free Press. I'm a producer on that. And then I also host the Pin Down from Detroit Bad Boys with uh, my co-host Blake Silverman. Both are great. You know, we have a lot of fun, even though the team's really bad. So, you know, that's a good time uh, as well. If you'd like to follow more of my, you know, my thoughts and you know, musings on, on current events, economic theory. I write a blog on Substack. It's called Davenport Economics. Trying to grow that, just trying to have a little bit more of a uh, an intellectual space as well. Keeping the two separate, of course. But yeah. I have a lot of fun. Uh, would, would appreciate a subscribe. Uh, obviously got the email list and, and all that. So it's a great time. Yeah, if you subscribe, he, he sends out occasional newsletters. What I appreciate Try to about, do weekly. Yeah, what I appreciate about it, it's not too much. That's, the, that's what we say. It's actually not too much. It's a good amount. Yeah two to four pieces of content a month it's enough to just digest mm-hmm. but it's not enough that just annoys your inbox oh, you. either yeah, so I, appreciate that. I would definitely recommend everyone listening to the podcast subscribe to his uh blog on substack davenport economics it's a cool things i've read some things that i'm like mm, that's interesting and other things i'm like that is insane i never thought of it that way and so it's a good mix <laughs> Ooh, of everything I hear what was what. <laughs> um and uh and i love it so so i i click it every time it comes through my email i'd recommend you guys do the same i will have a link in the description if you guys want to type in your email go to your Substack that they can yeah. do that that way okay thank you I appreciate um, that. thank you guys for listening to this episode of the dylan england show um if you're still with us after two riveting hours of awesome conversation thank you seriously uh please hit that hit that subscribe button hit that like button Thank you guys for tuning in and we'll see you guys on the next episode. Thanks, man. Thank you.